This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. you to the room of our viewers and today's episode of zero g is lifting off as we speak episode number one one nine nine entitled two thousand and way one ways to transcend to a higher plane of existence in space and our podcast title today is or how I stopped worrying and learned to love the pod. <laughs> so you can probably guess what we're going to talk about today just from that. Because we're in a 50th anniversary mode today after the Radiothon. Not my 50th anniversary, but something I hold truly dear. In 1968, we were going... For a leadership change here in Australia, where uh, John Gorton got sworn in as the 19th Prime Minister, taking after um, uh, taking over from John McEwen after being elected leader of the Liberal Party the previous day, following the disappearance of Harold Holt. It was a very messy year, 1968. The Vietnam War, the Battle of Khe Sanh, the Tet Offensive and the Mylay Massacre, uh, so many horrific moments in that terrible conflict. In May, the US nuclear-powered submarine Scorpion sank with 99-bed men aboard. I think the Russians also lost a, a submarine that year too, in similar circumstances. There was a US B-52 stratofortress that crashed in Greenland, Four nuclear bombs were dropped out of it when it crashed. It took them a while to find them all, too. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot dead in Memphis, Tennessee. And a strange echo, future past history, Saddam Hussein became the vice chairman of the Revolutionary Council in Iraq after a coup d'etat. Movies, Ice Station Zebra echoed the Cold War tensions, but there were horror movies like Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead also. Other popular movies included Bullet and the excellent Lion in Winter, as well as Zeffirelli's famous Romeo and Juliet. A lot of these are reflected in easy listening albums of the times, if you ever see them, movie compilation ones will always have Romeo and Juliet on it. Possibly Rosemary's Baby, depending on how <laughs> evil an album it was. Science fiction did quite well. The cinema then, as I was saying, Night of the Living Dead, more or less science fiction. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Planet of the Apes, Yellow Submarine and Barbarella, all quite big movies at the time. On television, we had Plato's Stepchildren, the 12th episode of Star Trek in its third season, its final season for then, and uh, it featured the first ever interracial kiss on 
American national television between Lieutenant Uhura and Captain Kirk. Over in Britain, we had Doctor Who season six, which meant there was Patrick Troughton, the second Doctor's era. I think he was um, coming up to the end of the era, 10th of August or something like that, 68. Out in space in 1968, they'd launched three Apollo missions. One was an unmanned one and also uh, Apollo 7. And at Christmas in 68, the manned US spacecraft Apollo 8 entered orbit around the moon, carrying astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lowell and William A. Anders. They were the first human beings to see the far side of the moon and planet Earth as a whole. Uh, you may have seen the, uh, the famous photograph that Anders took, Earthrise showing the moon, the uh, Earth heaving up over the uh, lunar surface. Now, they didn't land on the moon. This was a, a test flight just to see if they could get there and back safely. And so, in 1968, several other things happened, including the one that I wanted to talk about today, which is to say the premiere of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey Stanley Kubrick's to my mind masterpiece and what a film that was now I actually caught up with the IMAX screening on the weekend the 50th anniversary 4K restoration screening of 2001 and it was an experience um, I have just not um been able to get to a screening of it. For, it's been a while, actually, on the big screen. I think probably the last one I saw was a, an Aster screening in 70 mil, um, some stage. But this, the 5, 4K one, has uh, been inspired by Christopher Nolan, who's um, gone out there and pushed to get this done. Uh, I think they will release a, a DVD version of that later on. Um, from memory, that also contains a, um, a, a normal Blu-ray disc as well. I took notes <laughs> as I, uh, I watched it and during the intermission um, on an iPad, which is actually ironic with a large with a, a large I, not a small ironic, um, because the iPad. The nomenclature of it, the branding is very 2001. In fact, the um, the creator of the iPod, the designer of that, uh, one of the uh, sorry, the copywriters who was working on um, boosting it, uh, remembered the EVA pods from 2001, the extravehicular activity space pods, and thought ePod, hmm, and so he liked the idea of it being the iPod. So they bear that. And, of course, there's actually been um, some uh, wrangling and tussling over who actually invented these portable tablets. Um, they're used in the film 2001. Um, used in Star Trek, too, come to think of it, in classic Star Trek, as well as other places. But uh, it has been the point of some dispute. I think they've settled themselves down, Samsung and uh, Apple now, over all of that. But uh, who knows? It's one of the big impacts of the film 2001 upon pop culture. Just the sheer design, that um, slick futurism that they 
really pushed to the maximum in 1968, or in fact the, uh, the four years that it took to make the film, um, that really carried on into the future, quite literally, in, the, in pop culture. Uh, it got a little bit tangled up over in um, science fiction films, though, as uh, things got more and more gritty and uh, detailed in 1977 with Star Wars and other films where they began to just load everything up with detail to make it look a little bit more real, you know, alien and so on. But anyway, watching the film, I took a few notes and I'm going to spoil the film because it's 50 years since it came out. Now, no shade on you if you haven't seen it, if you're too young to have gone along and seen a, a session of it or uh, haven't seen it on DVD or streaming or anything like that, fair enough. You might choose to mm, put yourself on uh, into hibernation for today's Zero-G because I'm going to assume that um, you've seen the film, which is, after all, one of the jewels in the crown of science fiction. There's a lot of things I noticed about it this time. Um, Stanley Kubrick would have really liked the IMAX sound system, um, the sound in there was visceral and blew through me. It was amazing. There's um, the the Sentinel, you know, the monolith that sits on the moon. When it sends out its wireless transmission, its radio signal out to the stars, the fire alarm that uh, lets its makers, or perhaps just others like itself, it might be just um, purely an AI thing, know that mankind has actually managed to heave itself out of the mud and cross space to its nearest satellite and uncovered the monolith. That's what it was there for. Uh, when it sends out that signal, it purely hurts the ears in the cinema, really, really. And then you get to the, the genius point where it stops and we're out in space, in deep space, with the discovery probe. And it's all quiet then, dead silence. Uh, the negative spaces in that film are just as important as the positive ones. I thought the 4K restoration worked quite well. It was um, kind of grainy um, with the film stock and, and I think it would be a shame to take that out because that's the way I remember it. Uh, but everything else was um, just so clear. The, uh, the, the detail on some of the, um, the models I haven't actually seen before in, in that, that clarity. It was quite amazing. <laughs> Other things that I noticed... Um, in the film, um, it's kept vague about the nature of the orbital satellites that the famous um, jump cut where Moonwatcher, the man-ape, throws the bone into the air triumphantly and then it um, cuts away to a spaceship of some sort, a craft, a satellite. Um, it's supposed to be an orbiting nuclear weapon. Uh, it is in the book, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's um, novel version, but uh, in the film it's never spelled out, partly because Stanley Kubrick didn't want to uh, uh, raise the spectre of um, Doctor Strangelove in this new movie. He thought it would be kind of irrelevant. Now, I wondered about uh, some elements in this one and noticed some new things um, about it. Uh, like, for example, Hell 9000 delivers his um, little psychology report to... Uh, Dave Bowman and Frank Poole, or one of them, I can't remember which one it was. Uh, it was Dave, actually. And we're really aware now, having this film 50 years in the past, that he's lying, that he's he knows about the mission's uh, monolithic objective. And this is part of the uh, psychological dilemma that blows Hal's mind and turns him into a, a killer 
artificial intelligence. He figures that if he kills the crew, he won't have to lie to them anymore and thus preserve both the mission, which he's perfectly capable of carrying on himself, and also his other directive of um, being perfect. <laughs> so, well, it's all good there, apart from the fact that he's killed the crew. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, actually, it might have been interesting if, if he had managed to wipe out all of the humans on board, continued the mission by himself, it might have been Hal that went through the Stargate as a superior AI intelligence, maybe he would have been automatically uplifted as well. Although I can't... He was fairly unportable, Hal was. Um, <laughs> apart from... I mean, his smallest avatar seemed to be control of the space pod. I don't know if um, you would have been able to fit the entire hundreds of metres long star spaceship discovery inside that... Um, <laughs> that Rococo bedroom <laughs> at the end of the film. Um, now I gotta, I've got to draw that or do something about that because <laughs> that just strikes me as being terribly funny. But it, it's amazing here. I've heard people say that um, the film is a bit unemotional. Um, I certainly have never found that since the first time that I saw it in 1977. I mean, the uh, the emotion amongst the, the uh, ape men at the dawn of man, that's very, very visceral, very palpable there. And there are parallels. Okay, Hayward Floyd is um, very cool and professional as the space scientist who, again, has to lie to everybody about uh, cover story, but that's his job. Later on, of course, we have um, the two unhibernating or the two awake astronauts on board the Discovery, and they have the right stuff. They're, they're very much highly trained, highly skilled, with 50 doctorates each, uh, hugely physically fit, all of that. Um, they are what they thought astronauts should be in 1968, and indeed, <laughs> pretty much continue to be to this day, but uh, they were highly trained people. And, yeah, they did lose their, their bickies in a very sort of controlled way, but that's what they're paid for. And even after the, the ultimately tragic and fatal killing of one of them, they still worked the problem, flying it all the way into the ground if necessary. And this I find very believable. But you watch Kier Delia as um, Dave Bowman in that space pod as he realises it's all gone horribly wrong and pear-shaped and, and that uh, Hal has actually killed everybody. The reaction there as he reins it in, it's actually far more interesting than in just running around and screaming. And You know, I think that, uh, that was a very well-judged piece of acting there. I think that Kubrick would have uh, loved the fact that his procedural in many cases was well, not you know. Let's not use the word prescient, but so well thought out that it has carried over into modern day space exploration. Uh, but I think he would have been surprised that we haven't actually gone on to do some of the things that he had there. Fifty years ago, we still don't have a permanent settlement on the moon. Uh, we don't have anywhere near a, as massive a space station as Space Station Five was. We have certainly no plans for, or at least no, nothing underway like a manned mission to Jupiter. We'll get there eventually, but it's taking us a lot longer than uh, Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke thought. Once again, I'm stunned by the beauty of the model work in this film and the cinematography and the special effects, which were absolutely at the top of the cutting edge at the time in 68, and they were even pushing beyond that with their slit-scan photography, and Douglas Trumbull's work on that is uh, well worth um, revisiting. But... Um, 
you know, it's, in a lot of ways, this film is kind of like the swan song for some of these traditional special effects, almost, but not quite. But certainly the uh, the cerebral storyline was something that um, had been pushed in some other science fiction films, but never to this extent. I mean, this film was ultimately so well designed, right down to the fonts used on everything. You know, there there have been books written about just the use of fonts in 2001. I was chilled by the way that um, death in space is depicted in this film as either silent or accompanied by strident alarms within uh, the uh, the bubble of their life support systems back in the spaceship. Just absolutely chilling, especially that moment when the space pod turns around implacably in space, opens its claws and proceeds to follow the astronaut. Oh, amazing stuff. I thought the Stargate trip in the film was as effective as they could possibly make it at the time. Uh, absolutely destroyed me watching that in 77. <laughs> I still remember my mother's um, reaction to that after she'd seen the film. She wasn't particularly a science fiction fan, but she'd taken her son along to see the film and bless her for that. She um, <laughs> said, I like the colours. I think that's a, a great way to see it. Did we actually see the aliens in the film? Well, there's some dispute about that. The monoliths, ultimate AIs, their um, artificially intelligent Swiss Army knife kind of machines that can do anything, train a civilization in the ways of violence, all sorts of things those things can do. Uh, I think maybe they were what was left of the energy beings that had ultimately transcended themselves. Who knows? Arthur C. Clarke does. <laughs> Read the book. Um, I thought that um, uh, time does not pass in the film as in a normal place, particularly at the end of it where um, everything's just so out of place but yet totally in place in that strange hotel room. It all made sense to me at the time, actually, and we'll get back to that a little, a little bit later. But it was a great opportunity to go and see, uh, going to see 2001 again in a big screen. Pretty decent house, too. Uh, and they're obviously an educated IMAX audience because they knew enough not to sit too close to the screen, otherwise the whole thing would tower above you. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was fun, actually. It was a, a great blast from the past for me, and I think actually deserved having a look at today on Zero G. And more about 2001 after our next track. Now, I opened up with 2001 A Space Odyssey, the prelude, The Dawn of Man, and that's actually the alternate soundtrack composed by Alex North from the Space and Beyond album, which I've got. Um, but in this case, uh, that alternate soundtrack that Kubrick commissioned didn't move him enough to use it. So he went with the, I guess, the temp track, we'll call it, and so instead of that, you got uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra. So that was the um, the other one. I actually think that um, the classical music that Kubrick chose himself was a lot more a lot more apt to the film and gave it a timeless sort of um, feeling to it beyond what a composed soundtrack at the time w could possibly have done. All right. So, but nevertheless, here's another uh, Alex North Lost 2001 piece of soundtrack. Uh, this is the space station docking. So this is what uh, North was going for instead of the Blue Danube. And it's all right, but it's not the Blue Danube and it doesn't give you that sense of uh, orbital ballet. 
This is Cory Doctorow, author of Little Brother, Information Doesn't Want to be Free, and the forthcoming novel Walkaway, and you are listening to Zero G on 3RRR. Ah, there we have Mr. Alex North wandering out into space with the docking sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey, but not actually from the film, just a, um, a kind of a... A temporary accommodation, a trial soundtrack, if you will, <laughs> from a lost soundtrack to 2001 A Space Odyssey. All right. Now, I wanted to have a ramble. <laughs> to feel like a rambling day today uh, after the controlled energy pulse <laughs> that is the triple r radiothon last week and again thank you to all of the volunteers and the staff at the station and also to you the listeners for subscribing in such vast numbers to triple r and zero g in particular thank you it says that with all humility now Back to 2001, A Space Odyssey. The first time I saw it was during its second theatrical revival release in 1977. It had already been uh, re-released in 1974. Um, The 1977 one had something to do with Star Wars, but um, I don't know actually how much because they would have had to have booked those um, cinemas in advance, so I don't know for sure. Um, they couldn't have plotted how big a hit Star Wars would have been, could they? Or were they that nimble back then? I don't know. Amongst a, a lot of other things, I recall being rather smug back then in 77 about having a a pretty complete understanding of the plot of 2001, including everything that happens beyond the infinite, that is, after the discovery gets to Jupiter. I mean, for me, hyperspace portals were where space-time went wibbly-wobbly and humans kept were kept in elaborate zoo-like habitats for study by aliens who then uplifted their subjects to become super-evolved energy beings. These were all familiar tropes to someone who was already marinating in science fiction, especially the science fiction work of 2001's co-creator, Sir Arthur C. Clarke. I'd already read the key short story that inspired 2001's plot, The Sentinel, written by Clark in the late 1940s and published in 1951. And that story encompassed all of the main elements of the TMA-1, which is to say Tycho Magnetic Anomaly Number 1, that is the monolith on the moon story. And, and similarly, Clark's 1953 novel, Childhood's End, contained critical elements of prehistoric encounters with aliens, as well as having them uh, return to oversee humanity's ultimate evolution into transcendent energy beings. And the Dawn of Man sequence in the film is also a little reminiscent of Clark's other seminal story, Encounter in the Dawn. There are other examples, even without leaving Clark's body of work. Now, annoyingly, I can't now recall if I cheated by reading the actual novel 2001, born from a collaboratively complex parallel evolution with the film. Kubrick 
and Clark advanced in not exactly lockstep, but they wrote both at once. <laughs> the date on my treasured copy is unrevealing, as the last printing was 1974. It could easily have been sitting around in the shop for a while after that. I might easily have purchased a, a copy in 1977 after seeing the movie for the princely sum of $1.25. That's Australian. <laughs> By the time I got on a, a whim another copy, because it had a, a different cover picture in 1982, the book was touted as having sold 2.6 million copies and has been in print ever since 1968. The book was touted as, as um, uh, being the book about the science fiction film. I have no reason to alter that rather bombastic bit of hype. The book is not the film and the film is not the book, but it's clear that both director and author are riding in tandem on a bicycle built for two. Clark and Kubrick or vice versa, depending on which way you pedal. And really the differences between the book and the film are actually quite cosmetic. For example, the book's spaceship Discovery travels to Saturn instead of Jupiter, uh, the, uh, the former being easier to render in words than in the cinematic special effects of the time. Although not terribly many years later, one of 2001's visual effects maestros, Douglas Trumbull, went on to solve that problem for his own science fiction epic, Silent Running, where they did indeed shoot the rings of Saturn. In the book of 2001, it's made clear that some of the satellites orbiting Earth are indeed nuclear weapons, which the star child, when he returns to Earth, the transcendent Dave Bowman, promptly destroys by detonating them while presumably shielding Earth from any nasty effects. It neatly underlined that the state-of-the-art bone weapon, the club thrown into the air by the ape-man, Moonwatcher, all those millions of years ago in the film, is different only in scale from the weapon of an atomic bomb. Whatever order I read them in, I was also attracted to books about the making of the movie. This was a spillover from reading similar Star Trek books that had already given me insight into the fact that television and movies were made things and that there was a fascinatingly complex process in doing so. So, we'll talk about those moment. Now, I want to play um, something that's really, really terrible audio quality. It's scratched. It's got um, not too much dust on it since I wiped it off before I came in. But I just want to give you a bit of the archival effect of this one. It's um, a 45 single. It's from EMI Columbia, made in Great Britain. And what it is is 2001 A Space Odyssey, theme music from the film and TV's Apollo moonshot programs. Because, of course, 2001 was happening at the same time as they were in the ultimate stages of the US American Apollo lunar project. As I was saying before at the start of the show, their ships had gone to the moon and orbited it at the end of Christmas. So just, uh, you know, not that many months after 2001 premiered, certainly while it was still in some cinemas. Uh, and so the, mu the music from the iconic Strauss Thus Spake Zarathustra theme that they used in 2001 was also the theme of space exploration at the time ironically, and also become tied in with uh, another bit of music that we'll play later on in the show, and you know what that one will be. But back in the day, 
this was all over the airwaves because it just seemed so right. And indeed, the little 45 album that I've got, the cover shows um, the Apollo command and service module approaching the moon with the lunar module actually detached and on its way down. And a pretty good artistic rendering it is of it, right down to being able to see the astronauts inside. <laughs> I think that might actually be a cutaway picture too, by the looks of it. Yes, it is. <laughs> Probably wouldn't work too well if they were actually out there like that. Houston, we definitely have a problem. So I'll just give you a little bit of this, just so that you know, this, this album was, was um, played back in the day, 50, so it's 50 years old too. 2001, A Space Odyssey, Thus Spake Zarathustra. Uh, 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 testing, testing, one, two, three. Is this thing on? Oh, uh, I'm Danny John Jules. I played Dwayne Dibley on Red Dwarf. Uh, listening to Zero G Wiz is keener than train spotting. Uh, was, was that okay? Hey, you're standing on my anorak. Yeah, indeed you are. <laughs> With Zero G, science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio. Rob Jan here. Not sure if I identified myself at the start of today's show. I might have got um, overlooked in the dash to the microphone. But there we are with Zuspake Zarathustra. That one actually comes from 1968, although the Strauss's um, music is actually much older than that. But that single was floating around in Zero G back in 1968 when... 2001 a space odyssey premiered and the music became inextricably entangled with the apollo moonshot programs at the time i'm very lucky to have a copy of that i feel like um it's the sort of thing that he should put away immediately back in its protective plastic case which i have done the b-side of course is the blue danube (laughs) what would you expect right i think one of the reasons why the music works so well in the actual film 2001 is that I will admit it, that uh, pseudo-philosophical, spiritual, religious connection that it has, because that's a track that raises the hair on the back of your neck every time. Returning to a sort of a literary trail through 2001, um, we have my fascination with making of books. And I'm a sucker for procedural, so... I eagerly poured over the first of these making of books that I got my hands on, Jerome Agel's highly informative, information-packed 1970 published book, The Making of Kubrick's 2001, with its glorious 96 pages of black and white photos, a special photo insert, as they said, and all of the press clippings and... uh, synopsises and people's opinions about the films and um, pop culture reactions uh, contained all of the information about how trippy a film 2001 was especially in places where certain substances were smoked in the cinema at the time and one young man went running down the middle of the aisle screaming out at the monolith it's god it's god (laughs) ah the days (laughs) Arthur C. Clarke published his own account of the collaborative process in 1972, which gave a highly detailed account of the various roads not taken to the stars and how both novel and film uplifted each other by their constantly evolving bootlaces. 
<laughs> the lost world of lost worlds of 2001 told it all in an often light-hearted manner that I found instantly engaging, giving a, a new perspective of what is incorrectly sometimes perceived as a, a humorously cold motion picture. The jokes and often the irony are there to be seen if you look, though don't expect a laugh track of 2001. Though you might pause and ponder as you look at that terribly complicated zero-gravity toilet sign in the future. Maybe I'll just hold on until we land on the moon, where gravity is restored, although it's a lighter gravity. The twists and turns in the collaboration between Clark and Kubrick were many. As Clark said, at one point we had the monoliths riding in the backs of open-topped convertibles, escorted by Irish cops in a ticker tape parade down Fifth Avenue. <laughs> Would have liked to have seen that. And meanwhile... I'd even followed 2001's tie-in story into Marvel Comics, where Jack the King Kirby gleefully adapted it for a giant-sized comic book with photo collages which were entirely apt to convey the ginormous sense of wonder of the whole thing. Later on, they went to a short run of comic books that spawned the Machine Man superhero at the end of the run. I think that was uh, also celebrating Jack's return to Marvel Comics in 76. Now, Clark went on to write an expansive sequel to 2001, which appeared in 1982 as 2010 Odyssey 2. Stanley Kubrick was dead against the idea of a sequel to his movie, and had also taken the precaution of destroying most of the props and costumes and so on from the uh, the production to make sure that they couldn't be recycled in other movies, although he was less successful the, at that than um, he might have hoped because some of the bits and pieces did appear in other movies and so on later on. Although, once you got far enough away, they started becoming homages to 2001 rather than just using bits and pieces left over. But Arthur C. Clarke had more big ideas to explore and money to make as an author, including one about turning celestial bodies into stars. Uh, see his 1951 novel, *The Sands of Mars*, where they fusion ignite one of the red planet pair, one of the red planet's pairs of moon, to become a, a handy mini sun. The novel was promptly adapted to become Peter Hyams' 1984 movie, 2010, The Year We Make Contact. And Clark also wrote his own making of book, The Odyssey File, which is, again, a very detailed document about the collaboration between author and director, but more than a... Um, more than uh, more years later, more than 20 years later. So it's a different process. Now, the third book in the series... 2061 Odyssey 3 published in 1987 has yet to spawn a movie and neither has the fourth book 3001 the final Odyssey which came out in 1997 here are some spoilers for those novels <laughs> apart from turning Jupiter into our solar system's second sun cheekily chris christened Lucifer these three later novels resurrect Hell 9000 and indeed merge him with the star child Dave Bowman to become a group energy being known as Hellman. They also managed to revive astronaut Frank Poole after his snap-frozen body is recovered from deep space. They have the technology. There's also much about humans still being judged by the monoliths and or their builders. 
And that knowledge, when you see the film again now, 50 years later, reflects that. Is it quite so sad knowing that Hell 9000 is dying as he's lobotomised by Dave in the computer room now that we know that he gets resurrected and they both become good friends? In fact, the one friend, um, Frank Poole's uh, tragic death, again, he's going to come back. Well, they, they still do move me. They are still quite tragic within context of the movie, although I do feel like I've been given a Marvel reboot <laughs> up, the, up the back of the space suit, as it were. All right, let's have a look at uh, another track here. Now, this one I'm going to play uh, is actually kind of um, inspired by 2001. There are so many movies that are inspired by that film. This is obviously one of them with its sense of wonder intact in a nastier way, although is it actually nastier considering what happens in the film 2001? Uh, it's called Approaching the Shimmer. It's by Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barra, and it is from Annihilation which is very much a sense of the weird and wonderful movie, one that makes you think quite a lot. Hi, I'm George Takei, and I play Admiral Sulu in Star Trek. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Admiral? Hey, a guy can dream, can't he? <laughs> <laughs> now, when I was watching that this time around in 2001, I, I could not help but think of uh, Dark Star. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that little error, fellas. Uh, a little bit of dialogue there from 2001 uh, Space Odyssey. Douglas Rain there, the voice of uh, Hell 9000. And also um, Keir Delia, Dr. Dave Bowman, and uh, Gary Lockwood, who played Gary Mitchell in the Star Trek episode Where No Man Has Gone Before. Now, we're just talking about some of the uh, literary aspects of 2001 Space Odyssey and round that off with some more making of books, um, some more recent ones here, more or less. Uh, Pierre's Bizzoni's Filming the Future in 1994 was a critical 2001 making of book. Um, the definitive all-rounder. It was physically big enough to have lots of pictures and stills and production artwork, all reduce, reproduced in glorious black and white, <laughs> some of them in colour. Uh, but that really was one that um, set the template, along with, of course, every book about Stanley Kubrick, which has ever had a chapter or chapters about the film. Uh, recommend the museum catalogue book that accompanied the uh, early 2000s travelling exhibition, for one example. There's Christopher Frayling's The 2001 File, uh, Harry Lange and the Design of the Landmark Science Fiction Film, and that one's a real treasure. It's um, matte black card covers, silver picked-out EVA helmet and silhouette on the front. Very classy. Um, came out in 2015 and, again, had a real large amount of sketches, photos and designs from the film which is uh, one of those design-heavy films. You know how they put out the um, um, the making of the, the, the art of the Marvel movie series? These were That was like that back in the day. Even larger than that, in 2012, came out an A3-sized book called 2001 The Lost Science, the Frederick 
Ordway the third collection from the US Space and Rocket Center archives because they did actually have real rocket scientists working on the production of 2001 they sort of borrowed them for a while some lovingly restored blueprint drawings um, and some very rare shots of the models being built for the film and those models were no no toys and a 55 foot long discovery model it's quite a big undertaking back then <laughs> but they were quite standard too that they built uh, very very large models as well um, as you would know if you'd seen any uh, World War II style set films in uh, in that period with ships and uh, and planes being quite large the book that uh, at the moment is the the monolithic one of 2001 making of books is Tashen's The Making of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 and Space Odyssey. It's 561 pages long and again it's by Pierre Bizzoni. He's really upped his game. Uh, this came out in 2015 and it is actually of monolithic proportions. Again it's matte black. Um, the smaller version well, was about a foot and a half long and about six inches wide and it looks like a monolith basically and there is literally a coffee si table sized version of this one as well which costs like enormous amounts of money from the point of view of, um, of me <laughs> uh, but that one is that one is the uh, the one to go for the tash n one you can get it in a smaller version. You don't have to pay as much as um, some other people have paid for the big one if you have that much. I'm sure they take your um, <laughs> your monolith credit card if that's what it actually was. It could have been one of those. Uh, there's been so many spin-off things about this production. Um, blueprints of the ships, models, uh, programs, lobby cards, star log specials back in the day, um, Cinefix and American cinematographer all had uh, specials about the uh, the making of the movie. Uh, there have even been some um, action figures. A few have been filtering through now. Um, and, of course, there are the, uh, the various DVD productions and VHS before that. Uh, laser disc as well, too. Uh, and it is coming out again in um, uh, 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray on October the 30th this year. Uh, and some of those, one of those in particular, I think it was the 2007 one, had a whole lot of documentaries and other things included in it that was um, quite amazingly uh, produced. Watching those docos were really just uh, uh, little making of um, featurettes back in the day. Uh, it was quite uh, illuminating about the film and about its production such a sense of urgency and we are making an important film <laughs> in that. All right, well, that's about it for Zero G today. Joe Brunatic will be coming up next with Astral Glamour. I think I might carry over a few things for um, 2001 in future because it's the anniversary all year, the 50th. Um, seems to be quite a common theme. A lot of 50ths coming up at the moment. We've had Doctor Who and... All kinds of things. An Iron Man, which perhaps only I celebrated, seemed to have slipped by. Nobody else seemed to worry about it. Oh dear, how sad. Never mind, I made up for it. <laughs> All right, now, again, thank you to the subscribers. Remember that you uh, uh, do have some time yet to subscribe, to still be eligible for some of the uh, major prizes and so on. And we'll go out with a Bowie track, of course, 
for today and the Bowie track that is absolutely inextricably linked with 2001 A Space Odyssey as much as Thus Spake Zarathustra is the pop song of the day, Space Oddity. And this one feels like it ties in with 2001 and the Moonshot problem, uh, program as well. So to me, they're all munged together in one triad of basically geek ecstasy in the future and the past and the retro future that 2001 Space Odyssey now represents because it is like that. Watching it the other night was just um, thinking this is what they thought the future would be. In some respects, I think they actually had a better future than ours, the way it worked out. I mean, certainly I'd love to have uh, be able to just step out and loft off to the moon like it was on public transport or something. Anyway, that's it for now, and we're closing the pod bay doors. Thank you, Hal. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.